A few weeks ago, we started this series uh, titled The Compelling Christ. And uh, what we're thinking about is really that. Like, how is it that Jesus is compelling? What is it that's significant or unique or special about him? Um, Specifically, as it pertains to how it is that he brings the presence and the beauty and the glory uh, of God into the world. And so Jesus, uh, of course, does this in in a number of different ways. Uh, You think about the miracles where he enters in and, and he walks on water or he provides you know, food for those who are hungry, and he raises the dead. Like, he does all these amazing things. Um, but he also interacts with people. He, uh, he interacts with a diverse group of people, whether it's an individual or a crowd, whether it's the rich, the poor, the religious, the irreligious. Like, Jesus interacts with a ton of people. And as he does, what he's doing in his interactions is he's bringing the presence and the beauty of God into the world. And so what we're asking is, like, what is it look like uh, for Jesus to do that? And then what does that mean for us to be the kind of people who bring his presence and beauty into the world? Because we are called to be that as well. And so we're, we're looking at all these different interactions that Jesus has with individuals and with groups, uh, really in the Gospel of John. So John is uh, one of Jesus' earliest followers and friends, and he records a great deal of uh, what Jesus did, what he taught, what he said, like stuff like that. Um, and many of these interactions uh, you find in chapters 1 through 12. And so we're just looking at all of these different times in which Jesus has conversation with people and what it is that he does. And so this week we come to this very famous passage uh, found in John chapter 3. Most of you probably familiar uh, with this story, whether you even realize it or not, because there's some famous, famous verses found in this passage, uh, namely John 3.16, which is um, that famous passage that people put on their shirts, you know, uh, at sporting events or even, you know, wave posters of, like they knit it into pillows. Like this is one of those those passages that is just super, super famous, right? Um, But Jesus having this interaction with this man. And as he does, um, I want you to see uh, how it is that Jesus is unique, special, amazing, um, wise, and just beautiful. Um, So if you have a Bible, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, is where we're going to be. I'm going to read it for us, and then I will pray a little bit of introduction and then uh, an outline as to where we're going. So, John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning, grateful to be able to step into the presence of your spirit, to be able to commune together with the saints, sing together, to be able to come to the table, take of the the bread and the cup and be reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of your son. And to open the scriptures and to see how it is that uh, your son so graciously enters in to this broken world and to our own personal brokenness and continues to reveal truth and himself and all the grace. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would help us this morning to give ourselves to truth that we would be molded and shaped, that we would be transformed. Father, we need this, and we trust that your spirit does work when we open the scriptures as we stare at your son, and so please, God, give us faith to believe that, for we ask in the most matchless, the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen and amen. And thunder came down from above. I'm curious if I was to ask you if you know anybody in in your life, um, family members, friends, coworkers, spouse, kids, um, that you might consider to be hard-headed. Anybody nudge the person next to them? No? Uh, Do you know anybody who just like, man, they just got this thick skull that no matter how much you try to tell them what is true and what is right and what is good, it seems as though it just, it just can't get through. If you have kids like under the age of 25, <laughs> that's kind of the way that they are, right? It's like you, you constantly try to help them to understand what is true and right and good, and yet it seems it just, won't, it just won't go through, you know? Maybe, like I said, you have even adults in your life where they're just, they're so opinionated and they're so stuck in their ways that when you try to raise something new to them, when you try to help them understand what is good, right, and true that might contradict what it is that they already believe, like, it just seems almost impossible. And at some point you just go, you know what, I just, I just give up. Like, you don't want to listen because you're already in this mindset and there's no way to kind of shake you out of that or to get you to think something different, you know? I'm curious um, if when I said, if you have any family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, whatever, that might be hard-headed if you might have thought, you, Anthony, are quite hard-headed. <laughs> because honestly, like, as, as I've been studying this passage, and it, to be totally honest, last week, um, 
I preached on uh, the, the passage where Jesus turns over the tables, but on Saturday I was, I was actually looking into this section and I was so overwhelmed with just the reality of the way in which Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, I found myself being very much like Nicodemus. And initially I wanted to title the sermon, The Religious, or how Jesus interacts with the religious person. Um, but Nicodemus isn't just a religious person. He's not just a Pharisee, as we see here in the text. And, and John lets us in on, on what it is that you know, Nicodemus is all about, or at least his like, social status and whatnot. But it seems to me that it's more about the hard-headed. And I found myself thinking, like, I'm, I'm one of those people that if you were to try to raise a new idea or opinion, or if you were to try to say, Anthony, maybe what it is that you're thinking, or the way that you're going about this thing, or maybe even the way that you're living your life, or a particular doctrine or something like that, like, Anthony, it's so hard for us to talk to you because you don't seem to have any give. You're not open to, to hearing how it is that maybe you might be wrong. Maybe that particular belief or doctrine you could be believing is wrong. Maybe that way about going things could be wrong. And, and I tend to be one of those people who, like, I just will push against you because, to be totally honest, like, I'm generally right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's the thing, though. Like, that, that's, that's what I tend to think about myself is that I am, like, why else would you believe that thing unless you thought it was right? And so that's, that's usually the way that I am. And... As I, as I see Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, I'm struck, not just by the way that Nicodemus uh, resonates with me, but the way in which Jesus actually interacts with him. Like the, the way that he is so willing to speak to this man and to, with even f like just this amazing forthrightness, because this is what it takes for a hard-headed person, right? Is just forthrightness and yet patience. He goes through all of this teaching with this man because he knows what it is that this man needs. And that is true, right? Most hard-headed people, they need some serious forthrightness. And so we've seen Jesus interact with people up to this point in different ways, but here, Jesus just keeps on pummeling this man's hard-headedness, and I feel him pummeling mine. And so what I want to think with you about this morning is the hard-headed, whether that's you or whether that's a person in your life, like how does Jesus confront this kind of a person? Um, how would he confront you if that's you, or how would he use you to confront those who maybe might be like this? And so I want to think first of all about how Jesus is compelling, like what is special, what's unique, what's amazing about Jesus, but then also how is he compelling, like what's he calling us to do, or how to interact with these sorts of people, or to receive him if we are this sort of a person. Spending way more time on the first um, than the second, but let's think first of all about how Jesus is compelling. And I think in here, um, big idea, kind of his fourth rightness, but put on display in a number of different ways. The first has to do with our need, right? And so Nicodemus has a need, and Jesus is very forthright about that. But then also salvation. Like, how does that actually happen? And Jesus is very forthright about that, too, because Nicodemus has a misunderstanding. Then also, Jesus' role. So Jesus speaks about his role in this whole salvation and what it is that Nicodemus' need is, but again, very forthright. And then lastly, what it is that he offers, because he does give Nicodemus something very special um, in offering. So let's think first of all about Jesus' forthrightness with Nicodemus in terms of his need or even our need. If you notice Jesus um, in, in verses 3, and then five through seven, he is very, very blunt. Look at what he says. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice how emphatic Jesus is. When Jesus uses the, these, these words, truly, truly, um, in, in ancient uh, Judaism, these words were used mostly to reflect upon what a teacher had spoken, right? So if a rabbi or a teacher had his, had his students or people in front of him or even a philosopher and, and spoke something and began to teach, then the people, if they agreed with what the person spoke, if they said, hey, yes, this is, this is true what this person is saying or we agree with this, this is in accord with the scripture or the nature of God, then they would say, amen, right? And so you hear this often in churches where the pastor will try to get you to say amen, right, which is to try to get you to agree with them, right? Or you might say, yeah, I don't do it very often because I always question everything that I say, so I don't expect you to agree with everything. But that's the idea, is you speak, and then the crowd or the individual who's reflecting on it says, amen, we agree with you in this, right? But that's usually the response of the crowd, not the person who's speaking after they teach something, and usually, certainly not before they say something. But here, what Jesus is doing, he doesn't wait for Nicodemus to respond, I agree with you, Jesus, amen. He doesn't even say this after what it is that he says. He says it before he makes a statement, which is Jesus saying, with authority, what I'm telling you, Nicodemus, right now, is absolute. It's a must. And so he goes on and he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. He's speaking with tremendous authority here. And what he's doing here with Nicodemus is he's helping him in on what, it, or helping him to see what it is that he needs. Nicodemus needs something, namely to be born again. Is that a dog? <laughs> He needs something to happen to him, right? So he's missing something, in other words. Now, when you hear the term born again, or you think about a person who's been born again, you, what, what goes on in your mind? Have you ever been to the South? Been, you know, to Tennessee? Or I've been to Tennessee because my brother lives there. I've been to Texas or even Georgia, Florida. Like, when people use the term born again down there, it's interesting. They have, like, categories of, like, Christian, churchgoer, and the born again. Right? And so my brother speaks of born-again people in, in very like, literal ways because he, he has to compare or contrast with just the average churchgoer, the person who calls themselves a Christian. They have to say, no, no, I'm a born-again Christian. And you're like, well, what's, what's the difference in Jesus' mind? There isn't really that much of a difference, but there's something that comes with that idea of born-again. There's like a type of person that is born-again. So when born-again comes into our minds, 2,000 years removed from Jesus, we think of a certain type of person. We go, oh, they're, they're one of those born-again types. And usually, that comes with the connotation of somebody who, who probably needed some like, emotional experience or somebody who has like, a certain moral code. So that born-again person is the person who, who maybe was down and out and needed to experience something, and so they became born-again. Right? Or it's that person who maybe lived a certain way and then decided to live a different way and so they've become born again. But it's a type of person that is usually in need of something. So the down and out, right? or the new moral code, that's usually the way we think of being born again. The problem, though, is Nicodemus. If you look back, notice how John describes Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now think about this. This is a guy 
who in our categories of needs to be born again, if that's all that it is, doesn't need that at all. This guy, as a Pharisee, would have had an amazing education, right? Not just in the Torah and the law or in Judaism, which he would have for sure, but he also would have had an amazing academic education. This guy, as a ruler of the Jews, would have been one who people looked up to in social status, right? They would have seen this guy walking through the city and they would have thought like public official, maybe even the way that we think of like our city council or our mayor. And I get some of us probably like, oh, politicians, we hate them all. But in, in this day, like think about the respect that this sort of person had. To be called a Pharisee meant that you had arrived like you were successful. To be called a ruler of the Jews meant that you arrived, like you were successful, you were looked upon, right? You looked up to. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. He's not talking to the guy in prison. He's not talking to the down and out. He's not talking to the guy who needs some kind of emotional experience in order to, to raise up or to, to become some different status. He's talking to Nicodemus. He doesn't need anything. Or so we would think from the outside looking in, but here, what Jesus is saying about Nicodemus is even Nicodemus needs to be born again. And what that means is that absolutely everybody needs to be born again. Like if Nicodemus needs to be born again, then everybody needs to be born again. Like that's what Jesus is getting at here, that, that every single person, no matter how far down and out you are, no matter how high up and people look up to you, every single person across the spectrum is in a desperate situation of need, that everybody needs to be born again. You know, New Testament writers, they reflect on this and they say some interesting things. Paul in Ephesians, he says it this way, you were dead. Now think about that, dead. What did dead people do? Nothing, they rot, that's about it, right? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of dis disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we lived as dead in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath or distanced from God or experiencing death like the rest of mankind. So Paul, looking back at the teaching of Jesus, is saying every single person is in desperate need of some new life. That we're all dead, we need some new life. Now here's what's amazing about this, right? Because that sounds quite terrible, <laughs> especially if you're, if you're here and you're like, well, I don't know if I really need anything, but, and Jesus is being really stark here, but let me, let me paint this in a positive light. Because what Jesus is saying here is that Christianity is absurdly, just absurdly inclusive. And what I mean by that is that Jesus is saying, no matter where you are, no matter where you are, whatever's happened to you, your previous belief system, what, whatever experiences you've had, whatever sin you've committed, whatever things that you've earned or that you've destroyed, he's saying across the board, it's possible, it's actually possible for everyone to have new life. Everyone could actually be born again. Like that's what he's getting at here. That's why in John 3.16, as we read earlier, that whosoever believes, whosoever, that's open to absolutely everybody. So first, he's, he's just forthright in terms of our need, but also in regards to what salvation actually looks like or what happens, right? And so if you look back, again, we'll read the same verses, but I wanna highlight something different. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice, Jesus here is, is speaking to a particular kind of thing. Like, he's, he's speaking of salvation in terms of this metaphor of being born again. Now, this idea of birth or being born carries with it the connotation of necessity, not just of something happening, but something happening to you, right? You can't do this on your own, is really what he's saying, right? Because to be born is something that you can't do on your own. You can't be conceived on your own. You can't be born on your own. Something has to happen to you, which means something external has to, something from outside has to impact your own life, like something beyond the natural even is what Jesus is saying. Because in the natural, as Paul would say, we're all walking in this kind of death. So something supernatural or beyond what it is that we can taste, touch, see, smell has to enter in and do something to us. And Nicodemus is really confused by this. And so as you carry on, he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus here is recognizing like, okay, Jesus, you just told me I need to be reborn. How am I supposed to do that? Like, what do you want from me? Like, I can't, I can't do that. And that's precisely the point. Jesus is trying to say like, you need something to happen outside of you. And so Jesus carries on in verses seven through eight. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus speaks multiple times in this passage to the idea of birth or this rebirth being an activity that the Spirit is involved in, which is an external reality, an external person. Now, Nicodemus, as a first century Jew, when he thinks of the Spirit, his mind would have, would have immediately gone to Genesis 1 where the Spirit is first mentioned. And if you think back to Genesis 1, when God creates, right? So God created the heavens and the earth. It's without form. It's void. There's darkness over the face of the deep. And what does God do? Well, it says that he speaks. But before he speaks, the author is clear to mention that the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And so God speaks when the Spirit is over darkness or over chaos, and when God speaks, he uses the spirit to bring forth beauty and goodness. And then what does God do? He takes his hands and he gets into the dirt and he makes for himself a human. He puts him in the garden and then it says that he breathed his life into him. The word for spirit hovering over the face of the deep and the word for spirit that, that entered into him or his breath into him are the same word, right? So in other words, there is no beauty and order and goodness and there is no life apart from the spirit of God. This is where Nicodemus's mind would have immediately went. When Jesus says, you need to be born of the spirit and of water, he's speaking of the same thing. Water is a metaphor used throughout the, New, the Old Testament to speak of the spirit. So he's saying, Nicodemus, you need something outside of you to happen, to enter in, something outside of the natural, the supernatural, the above, the beyond, the transcendent, to enter into your life, to bring forth something new. And so that's what Jesus is speaking of here in regards to Nicodemus. But when it comes to this, right, Nicodemus has a hard time believing this or receiving this. He's hard-headed. Why? Well, because I think Nicodemus doesn't really understand his need. And this is what I think Jesus is getting at with our first point, but here, his need, not just to be reborn, 
but how it is that he has to rely on something outside of himself for that to happen. If you think about this for a second, right? Think about how like my hard-headedness usually stems from me thinking I don't need whatever it is that you're giving, right? So if it's an opinion or an idea, I don't think I need your opinion or idea because my opinion and idea are just fine, right? I, and I believe those things other, like, because, I, be, because I think they're right, right? So if you're gonna offer me something different than what it is that I believe, I'm going to reject it because I don't need it. I think I'm already right. And so the only way to receive something new is to admit that I don't have it. I don't have the right answer. I don't have the right opinion. I don't have what it is that I need. I have to admit that I'm missing something in order to receive whatever it is that you give, right? So there's an element of humility that's required. And this takes some serious guts to admit that I'm missing something, right? Think about it like this, right? Um, say you're dating somebody, and I'll bet everybody in here has gone through some kind of dating or you dated somebody at some point in your life, I'm sure, maybe even the spouse that you're with right now. But say Christmas is coming, right? And you're, you're dating this person, and so you go to get each other gifts, right? And this person that you're dating gives you this gift, you unwrap it, and it's mouthwash. What are they saying to you? They're saying your breath stinks, right? You need to do something about this. The only reason that you would receive the mouthwash without being angry is if you were willing to submit to maybe that your breath stinks, right? What if they were like, hey, here's a gym membership? What if they were like, hey, here's a cookbook? Hey, here's a vacuum. Hey, I mean, just na- like go through the list of things that might offend you. And the reason that they would offend you is because you think that you're already fine. You think your breath is already fine. You think you're already clean. You think you cook just fine. You think you don't need to go to the gym, right? You think you're healthy, whatever. Like you go through the list. And the reason that you might be angry or push the gift away is because you think you're just fine. And here, what Jesus is doing is he's saying to Nicodemus, you're not just fine. Like you need to receive something and from somebody outside of you because you can't get it on your own. As Paul reflects on this, as you carry on in the book of Ephesians, he'll say this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, right? He made us alive together with Christ. Notice he did this. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. So what we see here with Jesus in in confronting our need is he's saying, first of all, Christianity is radically inclusive, just absurdly inclusive. No matter where you are, what you've been through, he's inviting you. But also here's what he's saying is that it's supernatural. And this is radically different than the way in which most philosophies or religions think about how it is that you attain God or you attain this kind of rebirth or new life. Like here, what what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this doesn't happen from your own striving after. This happens from some external supernatural intervention, which is the exact opposite of virtually every philosophy and religion on the planet. So Jesus is saying, totally inclusive, anybody who believes, but also something from outside has to happen, and then he gets more specific. And that has to do with his particular role. And so if you look back with me, he says, no one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. Now, just Jesus is saying, I came from heaven. Now, have you heard somebody say that? If you were just having a conversation with somebody and they're like, I came from heaven, you'd be like, you need a doctor. But here, Jesus, he says, I came from heaven, son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus is saying, you're, you're in great need. And he's also saying something supernatural needs to intervene with you. And now he's very specific as to what that supernatural means is, himself. Here, Nicodemus is being told the story of Moses and the, the lifting of the serpent. This is found in the, in the book of Numbers where there were serpents among the Israelites as they were traveling through the wilderness and some of them were dying. And they, they pleaded with Moses to, to, go and, to go and ask God to give them a cure and God gives to them this cure. And, and so he gives to them this serpent and Moses lifts up the serpent and he says that anybody who looks at the serpent will not die from the bites of the serpents in their midst. You know, they'd be healed. In other words, they would have life, right? And here what Jesus is doing is he's saying that just as Moses lifted up the serpent, that serpent, when you look at him, you have life, not death. So I'm the serpent. When the Son of Man is lifted up, Jesus is speaking of his death that's coming. He's lifted up on the cross. And when people look up at Jesus on the cross, his taking of death, they experience not death, but they experience life. And so what Jesus is doing here is really simple. He's saying, okay, Nicodemus, everybody needs to be born again. Everybody needs a new birth in order to have real, true life. And it has to happen from outside of you. You can't do it on your own. And it has to happen from me. Like there's no other means by which a person can actually have rebirth, can actually have new life. There's no other way. So Jesus here is being not just radically inclusive, absurdly inclusive, where he says anybody who believes. And he's not just saying that it's supernatural, which is different than every other philosophy and religion. He's also being ridiculously exclusive, where he's saying there's no other way. Like, I am the only way. So as he's being ridiculously inclusive, at the same time, he's being absurdly exclusive. He is the only way to life. If you read through the Gospel of John, you notice this just reiterated over and over again in the words of Jesus. Prior to this, in John's um, introduction, here's what he says in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So if you want to know God, if you need this supernatural intervention, which we all do, the only means by which you can understand who God is and what God is like is through this person of Jesus. So he's being ridiculously exclusive. You need some kind of supernatural intervention. The only means by which that can happen, and anybody can have it, but the only means by which it can happen is through this person of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus, saying you have to look to me. And so the New Testament writers, they, they will reflect on the significance of Jesus and his exclusivity over and over and over again. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, you have to look at the person of Jesus. So Paul in the book of Romans, he'll say this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now notice, who is to condemn? Notice, God justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, there's no other means by which a person can experience new birth apart from Jesus Christ. There's no way to know God apart from Jesus Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul say this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. There's no other way. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ. He's anointed us and who's also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Or for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Notice the way that Paul here is reflecting on Genesis 1 and even the words of Jesus. The words of John as well in his prologue. He is shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in Colossians, Paul will say this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or in Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus what the New Testament authors reiterate over and over and over again, which is to say that to be born again requires absolutely requires supernatural intervention and that supernatural intervention can't just be the God of your own choice. It has to be Jesus Christ. So he's radically inclusive but then he's also ridiculously exclusive at the same time. Whoever believes in the Son, they get to experience eternal life. Now this is super, super, super important. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, like just pay attention here for a second, okay? We live in a culture and a society right now that is concerned about a whole lot of stuff, especially if somebody finds out that you're a Christian. They wanna get your answer on a whole plethora of social issues, political issues, right? They wanna ask you about what you think about certain moral things such as homosexuality or legalizing of homosexual marriage. They wanna get your opinion on what's happening in, in Middle Eastern countries. They wanna get your opinion on, on our, our own involvement in, in war or they wanna get your opinion on the death penalty or abortion. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about what people want to know about what you think because you're a Christian. And here's what I want to tell you. If you're a follower of Jesus, like, pay attention. You've got these friends. You've got these family members. You've got these coworkers, okay? Stay away from the peripheral. It doesn't even matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, you can have those conversations, but here's the deal. If a person asks you about those issues, it actually doesn't even matter your opinion unless you have an authority above yourself. Otherwise, it's just opinion versus opinion. And who cares, frankly, what it is that you think about abortion unless there's a person, maybe beyond you, who has an opinion that's greater than yours. And so it, it actually doesn't matter. Like you should say, like if somebody says, hey, what do you think about homosexuality or homosexual marriage? They, you know, well, I could tell you what I think, but then you're gonna tell me what you think. And guess what, who's right? Well, I don't know. But if you've got Jesus, who lived, died, rose from the dead, and said that he would, now it's not your opinion. It's Jesus' opinion. And so, so it doesn't, like the peripheral, sure, have the conversation, but get to Jesus. That's what's most important about everything. Because your opinion, frankly, doesn't carry any weight more so than the other person that you're talking to. But if you can get to Jesus, that's what matters most. And for those of you who, are, who aren't followers of Jesus, first of all, if you've come today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm so glad that you're here. Like when we started the church, we had you in mind to be a place where you can safely think about and consider who Jesus is, what he's like, what the scriptures are really all about, the story of God, like all of that, like super glad that you're here. If you're denying Christianity, I want to ask you why. And if your why is some weird whack job Christian, 
or if it's some crazy church that you were a part of, or if it's just what you saw on television and what they portray as Christianity, like, okay. But us Christians aren't Christians for anything other than the person and work of Jesus. So if you're gonna deny Christianity, at least know what you're denying. Like, look at Jesus and ask, is he a person worth following? And if you're really willing to consider that, like read through the gospel narratives, question like the person and work of Jesus, forget like the, the people who maybe say dumb things and act dumb ways, maybe the church that like, you were a part of that was really dumb too, whatever, like even this one, like whatever, who cares? Ask about Jesus and consider like, is he really the son of God? Because your only means to rebirth according to him is him. It's the only means. And yet he wants to offer it to you. And so what is this offering that he then gives? Well, notice, look back with me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, notice this, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus speaks of rebirth, being born again, and you notice in, in 3.16, he speaks of not death, but eternal life. So he puts this idea of rebirth and eternal life as synonyms, right? They're basically the same thing. When you're reborn, you have eternal life. They, they are inextricably connected. But what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to be reborn? Well, to be born means to have a completely new sense of reality, right? When, when you're in the womb, you have a sense of reality, but it's super restricted, right? You can sense your, you know, the, the, the woman who's holding you, the, the, like you can sense your mother and her words and you can be fed and you can experience the darkness of the womb, right? But when you're born, you experience something altogether different, right? This is, <laughs> when babies leave the womb, they immediately scream. You know why? Because the world sucks and they know it immediately. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> no they, they scream because it's an altogether new reality, like, what is going on here is what they're saying. Like, what I was used to and comfortable, like, even though it was dark, what is going on here? In other words, they have a whole new sense because reality to them is now, their eyes are open. They can see things that they couldn't see before. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, which is a sense. There's an ability to sense something beyond what it is that you were sensing when you were walking in your trespasses and sins and dead. You sense something altogether new, right? And what he calls it here is the kingdom of God. And the entry, like think about this, when, you, when you're born, you enter into a whole new world. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? You enter into a whole new reality. You start to see things that are beyond what it is that you can taste and touch and see and smell and hear. You enter into something altogether different, above, beyond is what he's saying here, right? And you know this from different, different levels of life. We talked about this in John 17 when Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they would know you and the Father, I'm sorry, the Father and the Son in whom you've sent. This is eternal life. He's, and when you think about life, you gotta think about it in the different ways in which it's sensed, right? So trees and vegetation sense life, but not the same way that animals do. And animals sense life, but not the same way that humans do. And what he's saying here is that a human, not just a fetus, but a born human, can actually experience life or know life in a completely different way. And what does he call it here? See, enter the kingdom of God. What? is that about? 
It's an altogether new reality. Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament scholar, professor, um, he speaks about the kingdom of God in a, in a five-fold kind of way. And it's super important, I think, because you can read about the kingdom of God all throughout the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus will mention the kingdom of God over and over and over again. And he'll speak to it in a particular way. But Scott McKnight takes all of the ways in which Jesus speaks about the kingdom, and he, he summarizes them in these five, these five different areas. And he says, first of all, there's a king. So when you're born again, and, and you have a new reality, there's a new king. Who was the king before? Well, probably you or whatever it is that you look to as being king. But now you're born again. There's a sense of a new king. This new king, of course, is Jesus. But this new king has a new way. Whatever it is that the king who before Jesus was had a particular way of ruling, of reigning over you, right? Whether it's yourself or some other idol that you're looking to, it had a way. It had a means by which it ruled. Jesus, if he is king, he rules in the New Testament, we find, by redeeming, by reconciling, by giving of himself through sacrificial love. So this king has a way about him. And when you're born again, you see a new king and you also see the way in which he rules. He rules with sacrificial love and giving of himself, redeeming, reconciling all things. But then also what you find is a people. A king always has a people. And when you're born again, you're born into a new king with a new way as a new citizen of that kingdom. And so you become a part of a new community willing to live under the rule and reign of this king. But then also a law. Throughout the Old Testament, you find that the king, who's Yahweh, gives this law. In King Jesus, he gives this law too. He says, for you who are my people, who now have this new way of seeing life, there's a new way in which I want you to live this life out. Read through the Sermon on the Mount, and you can see Jesus giving to us direction, understanding of how it is that we are supposed to live. But then lastly, you find a place. And the place is not pie in the sky, heaven, when you die. The place is here. This king rules and reigns in this way, here, now, today, you get to be a part, when you are born again, of this new people to be about his work in this place. So when you're born again, you're given a tremendous opportunity to be a citizen in a new kingdom with a new king, to live in a way that you couldn't before when you were dead. And that's now. Being reborn isn't just raising your hand when somebody says, do you want to accept Jesus? It's not just filling out a card. It's not signing on the dotted line. It's, it's right now. You get to be a citizen of the kingdom. You get to see and experience life in a whole new, different kind of way. And so what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus is he sees his hard head he sees like how Nicodemus doesn't recognize his need. He doesn't see Jesus as all that significant. And what Jesus does is he comes right at, you are in need, Nicodemus, and I've got something for you. Like if you just look at me, you can experience something altogether new and amazing in this life. And so how is Jesus then compelling? Like how is he getting us to embrace this and to actually live this fullness out? And I want to say in a couple ways. The first has to do with us who are believers, right? Us who are followers of Jesus, like even though this rebirth thing happens once and finally, like you are just reborn with a new king and a new place, like all of that stuff that happens once for all. I think there is this thing within the Christian life that needs to happen over and over and over again of just coming to the king, recognizing that he is above and beyond all things. And right now, some of us who are followers, myself included, 
are just hard-headed. Like he is inviting us into seeing the world in a different way and to experiencing him in a different way. And yet we're so hard-headed that we're like, no, this is exactly the way things should be. And we're not willing to hear or to see how it is that he might want to move in us in a completely different way. You know, as I was reflecting on this and I was thinking about how Jesus constantly pursues me, that even in my hard-headedness, which even right now, I can almost guarantee you that there are things that if you came to me and you wanted to address with me that I would not be willing to listen to because I'm so hard-headed. Like, that's just the way that I am. But over and over and over again, the same way that Jesus comes to Nicodemus, he comes to me. And he's coming to you. Like, he just never gives up. He's just relentless in his pursuit of you. And I was thinking about how God is so relentless in his pursuit of me and my hard-headedness that he just keeps on coming. I was reflecting this morning kind of unintentionally on, on this reality. And, and uh, I, I scrolled through Facebook real quick. And it, well, I wasn't scrolling through. It was actually the first post. You know, like on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, they give you the, the updates of like, you know, six years ago, you posted this thing, five years ago, whatever, you posted that thing. And uh, I came across this post that, that I posted six years ago, and I, I want to show you it. It's, my, it's actually my, my senior picture um, with a quote next to it. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> Golly. Look at this, what I wrote as my quote. No more the small one, the weak one, the frightened one, running from beatings, defeating. I'm becoming more than a man, more than you ever were, driven and burning to rise beyond Jesus. I thought I was better than Jesus. You see what I said I wanted to do? Owen Murray at Valley High School, that's where I graduated. I thought I was better than Jesus when I was a senior in high school. My brother over the course of a year and a half in fighting, in just like wanting to, no joke, like kill him. He wouldn't give up on what he knew his role was in my life. And over and over and over again, even though I hated that he kept telling me about my need, even though he kept telling me about my own brokenness, even though he kept telling me about Jesus and how he was the only way to this rebirth and new life, he didn't stop. Like my brother just kept on pursuing. And the way, the, way, the strength that was given to him to keep doing that was certainly the spirit of God. But he wouldn't stop because he knew that there was some light at the end of this tunnel. And he wasn't willing to give up. You see, what my brother knew was that he was the means by which God would get through that hard head. He was willing to, to say, no matter what it takes, Anthony's hard head is going to crack. And I don't mind being the one who keeps on pursuing so that he might experience what I know in Jesus. For those of you who are followers, listen, you might be the hard-headed one right now, but you might have hard-headed people in your life. And what I want to, I just want to plead with you don't give up on them. Don't. Like, I know what you might be thinking. They're, they're beyond, like, they're beyond, can you take that down? It looks stupid. They're beyond, <laughs> they're beyond like, Jesus' salvation. They're beyond rebirth. They're, they're just never, they're never going to get there. They're never going to hear. They're never going to listen. 
And certainly, you might be coming across the wrong way. That's, That's definitely a possibility. But don't give up on that person. Just the same way that Jesus pursued Nicodemus. Listen, when you read through the Gospel of John, you're going to notice something really interesting at the end. At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is crucified and his body is on the cross. And John records that two guys went to go and to pull him off of the cross and to take care of his body and to bury it. One was Joseph of Arimathea, who was this guy who owned some, some land and he had a tomb and he gave up his tomb for Jesus' body. The other was Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who went to Jesus by night in chapter three, because he's probably afraid of what his friends might think, is going in the middle of the day to take a dead body of a, really like a crucified criminal that he would have been associated with and probably would have, or was giving himself up to like, essentially I'm a follower of this man. He came by night and now here he is a radically different person. It doesn't say specifically that he was converted, but just notice his courage. Notice the way that he interacts with Jesus in such a different way. Something happened. Something happened to that man. And this is the opportunity that all of us have. We have the opportunity to play that role in another person's life. They're hard-headed, sure. You are too. Be like Jesus. I just want to read to you this one last piece in First Peter, and then I'll pray. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may be able to do this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's primary means of working in the world and even in hard-headed people is you and me. Don't give up. Jesus didn't give up on you. He's not giving up on you. Don't give up on those people. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you constantly pursue us by your spirit. That you constantly reveal your son to us. And God, we ask that today the picture that we've, we've received of your son, that he has entered in, that we might have life, would be the thing that saturates our minds and our hearts. Help us to look to him that we might have this abundant life that he promised. And Father, if there's anybody in our lives that, that need to know your son, would you help us, God, to have the courage that Nicodemus had at the end of his life to even in the middle of the day identify with your son that people might have life. We ask you for these things in the most most amazing, glorious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.